It's reassuring to know that God's promises do not fail. It's, it's reassuring for me, as we looked at Scripture last week, to know that Jesus is standing before the Father interceding for us, that Jesus is praying for us right now, that Jesus is standing in the gap um, on your behalf and my behalf. He's before the Father interceding for you and me. I mean, that is so powerful that for any follower of Jesus, we can know that we have an advocate that we have the son who's going to the father and saying, I died for him. I died for her. I'm, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that their faith stays strong, that their belief is in me, because they're going to be with me one day. I think that's such a powerful and, and beautiful part of, of Scripture, because in, in the battle of life, there are times when we can doubt, and our, and our faith can waver. And so for me, when uh, I've really enjoyed reading Hebrews again and just studying it because it really does just, it just it, um, underlines the fact that we have a, a firm and secure hope to cling to. And so if you have decided at some point in your life to follow Jesus, my encouragement to you this morning is don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. His promise to you is if you stay connected, if you stay connected, his promise to you is all that the kingdom is going to bring at the end of this age. We are living in what's known as the gospel age. And there's a culmination that will come. This end, the end of this age will come. And for those in Christ, we will, we will have that reward, that inheritance of the kingdom. We will have life eternal. So I want to encourage you this morning, don't give up. And I, and I also want to say that building a theological foundation in your life is actually quite important. And when I talk about a theological foundation, what I'm saying is that we all need to learn to know what this Christian faith is, what it is, why we believe what we believe. We've really got to get, get that sorted in our, in our minds. And so we've been teaching here from the New Testament book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews, he writes this letter, um, and it, it's got concepts in it that a lot of people find quite hard to grasp. Have any of you read Hebrews? Some of you haven't. You should read it. Some of you have read it. Did you get it all? Or did you like, oh, I need a study Bible. I need somebody to explain this to me. The, the Hebrews is, 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 is difficult. It's, it's, there are theological arguments in the book of Hebrews that are really, they're really dense. Even for seasoned Christians, you've got to go, what is the author saying over here? And so we've got to look at the context and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, uh, what God's trying to say through it. There's so much in it. And so sometimes we've got to put our thinking caps on and we've got to do a deep dive into the text if we are really going to know uh, what's happening so that we can learn and grow. And let me just remind you, that's my prayer for our church community this year. That's my, that's my prayer for 2023, that we will get to the end of 2023 and we will all be able to look back at this year and say, you know what, I stand at the end of this year as a more mature believer, a more mature Christian. That's my prayer for our church. We would be more mature in our faith. And that is what our text is going to focus on this morning. The responsibility that we all have concerning our faith. What do you and I need to do personally to stay connected to faith and to fellowship. Okay, before we read, let's pray again. Prayer is a wonderful thing. We just heard from Serena, God moves when we pray. So Lord, as we close our eyes and come before you again, we ask in the power of your spirit that the words 
that we read this morning from your word, your inspired word, Lord, would leap to life within our lives. We pray this morning that in the power of your spirit, we would be challenged, that we would be encouraged, and Lord, above all, that we would grow in our knowledge of you, that our worship of you would just be one of wonder and an adoration because of who you are. And so I just ask that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 19 through to 25. The author writes these words. He says, therefore, it might have been a she. So I'll just say the person said, and that could be because they don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And some people actually say it could have been a woman. And the reason why we don't know it was a woman because it was in that context and time. It was a very male-dominated society. It's very interesting if you go back and look at the, at the, at the history. Anyway, uh, the author, the writer says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So the book of Hebrews, if you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks, was written to Jew, Jew, Jewish Christians, right? Jews who had become followers of Jesus, who were living in the city of Rome almost 2,000 years ago. And the situation that these Jewish believers found themselves in was that the church was under this tremendous persecution. The emperor Nero had blamed the, the, the great fire of Rome on Christians. And so that's when that persecution just amped up and the Christians were being persecuted. And here you have these Jewish believers in these little home churches and they're facing pressure from the Roman authorities, the Roman government. And Christianity was not an officially recognized religion of Rome. Judaism was. Christianity wasn't. So many of these Jewish believers in Jesus were being tempted to disassociate themselves from the church because of the persecution, because of all of this pressure. And they were being tempted to go back to their former way of life in Judaism. In other words, they were being tempted to abandon the church, abandon Jesus, and go back to the Old Testament rituals and beliefs. And so the writer writes this book encouraging the believers to not go back, to hold on to their confession, to continue with Jesus, and to continue with the church. Now, the text that we've just read begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. And whenever you see the word, therefore, in the Bible, you need to ask yourself what it's there for. And generally, in Scripture, when you see that word, therefore, it appears when the writer is moving from the theory to the, to the practical. The writer is, is moving from principle to practice, right? Doctrine to deed. It's from belief. It's what about our beliefs are, but now how do you behave? So the writer's positioned a whole lot of stuff, and, and the writer now goes, therefore. So the writer's changing gear here. We're moving from the theory to the practical application. So here the author of Hebrews is saying, 
Why would you want to go back to the Old Testament? Why do you want to go back to this, this old ineffective system of laws and sacrifices and priests and, and the temple? Why do you want to go back to that when now everything is infinitely better because of Jesus? Last week I spoke about a total system upgrade. And that's what the author of Hebrews uh, is saying. Here. He said, he's saying everything has changed. Everything of that old covenant has changed. There's a new covenant in place now because of Jesus coming into this world. And so the author is saying, why on earth would you want to go back? Why would you want to go back when everything's changed? Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three questions. And um, we're going to work through, these, through, through this text, these verses, with these questions. So here's the first question. What difference does Jesus make? Honestly, what difference does Jesus make? Well, from this text, the first thing that the author tells us is that because of Jesus, we have better access to God. Because of Jesus, we have better access to God. The writer says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence now to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that um, under that old covenant, only one person could go into the presence of God and that would be once a year, like the high priest. The high priest could come into the presence of God. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. That was the day when the sins of the people for the year were going to be dealt with, right? So you'd have to wait, and the high priest would go. It was on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. But now, because of Jesus, we now, all of us can... We have the freedom to enter into God's presence whenever we want. Uh, you don't have to wait for me to go to some temple, to go into a certain chamber, to sort out your problems and your sins before God. I've I, I, I got nothing to do with it because now every one of us has the freedom to go straight to God. We don't have to wait for a day of atonement or, or wait for a priest to speak to God on our behalf. We can go to God when, whenever and whatever, whatever is happening, if you're depressed, you can speak to God. If you wake up at night and you're scared and you're anxious, you can speak to God. You can begin to speak to God about that. When you, if you're grieving, if there's been some kind of loss in your life, if you're concerned about somebody that you love, you can speak to God about that right then and there. And by the way, when you're happy and when you're blessed and when you're grateful, so often we forget to speak to God in those moments. It's also a good time to speak to God. Lord, thank you for the blessings. Thank you for how you've blessed me. Or, and God, I'm so grateful I get to live here or I get to do this. I'm so, you know, when, when things go well in our lives, God wants to hear it. Hey, I'm blessing you. I'm blessing you. Lord, thank you. So many of us just walk through life. Oh, it's, things are well, man. Things are, and then it crashes. Oh, God, where are you? We want to have a relationship with God. So we can go to God at any time and about anything. And the author is saying over here, why would you want to go back to having this restricted access when you can have complete access to God right now? So what difference does Jesus make? Well, because of Jesus, we have better access to God. We can speak to him at any time, at an, in, in any place. The second point that I want to make over here when it comes to the difference that Jesus makes, and this is what the author tells us, is that because of Jesus, we have a better revelation of God. The author says, we, because of this new and living way that's been opened up for us, the curtain that is his body. We now have a better revelation of God. 
And in fact, it, it was amazing because I didn't really clock the songs we were singing this morning, but we actually sang in that second song a line. How did it go? The veil is torn and the, how did it, and the door swings wide. And <laughs> Do you remember singing that this morning? The veil is torn. And so what the author is saying over here is really comp is comparing or the the author the writer is comparing the torn curtain that was in front of the holy of holies with the torn body of Jesus some of you will know that when Jesus died on that cross and he breathed his last breath uh, somewhat of a miracle took place in the temple in Jerusalem at the moment of Jesus death the curtain that was in front of the holy of holies got torn in two from top to bottom and so what the author is saying over here is that it, it means that now not only do we have better access to God that wasn't available before, but now we have a better revelation of God. You, you might ask yourself, you know, what is God like? You might have heard that question. What is God, God what, the creator of all things? What is God like? And the New Testament answer is stop and stare at the body of Jesus hanging on the cross. That's pretty much what we did when we took that bread and that wine this morning. That's what we were reminded of. That God is a self-giving God. What is God like? God is a merciful God. God is a gracious God. You can never experience God more or be more in touch with God's heart than in drawing close to him in the cross. Because it's in that suffering and it's in that torn body of Jesus that we truly begin to understand and experience God the best. When we really begin to understand and see what happened on that cross. And you know, it's interesting to me, I think that very often we find this out best in our own personal suffering. We often experience God the most and, and understand God the best in times of suffering and brokenness. And disappointment. Because there's something about suffering that, that, that breaks us, isn't there? Sometimes suffering brings us to a place where we just, we don't know what to do. We're, it's beyond our, we're at the end of our rope. And, and as Christians, that should force us to be so completely dependent upon God. And so that can be transform, transforming. That grows us when we invite God in. When we hold on to him in times of hurt and pain and suffering. And so the author of Hebrews says, why would you want to go back to that old system when you have discovered Jesus in his death on that cross? When you've discovered the very heart of God, you've discovered of who, God, who God is. Because of Jesus, we have better access to God. Because of Jesus, we have a better revelation of God. And because of Jesus, we have a better priest of God. In verse 21, the writer says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we have a great priest over the house of God. And we looked at this partly last week where right now Jesus is standing in heaven praying for us. He's praying for you as you sit and listen to me. He's praying for me as I stand and talk to you. And the reason why you and I continue in our faith is because Jesus is praying for us. We have someone interceding on our behalf. And he's at the right hand of God in heaven. And so the author asks the Jewish Christians of his day, 
you know, why would you want to go back to a situation where you've got some man who's going to go into a temple making some offering, you know, and, and relying on his prayers, when instead the Son of God is praying for you right now in the holy place in heaven? We've got a better priest because of God. He's interceding for us. He's interceding for you. I don't know if we always understand that or clock that. He's, he's, he's cheering you on in your walk with him. He's praying for you. In those moments when your faith wavers, in those moments when you doubt, when you don't see answers to prayer, you need to know that he's praying for you, that he's interceding for you. Here's what the author writes. Because of this, this better access that we have to God and the better revelation we have of God, in verses 22 to 24, the, the author says, Therefore, let us draw near to God. Because of what we've discovered about God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And so the author is asking here, because of this total system upgrade, because of this move from the old covenant to the new covenant, we have this totally new theological foundation, which we have in Jesus. The author starts to ask, well, how should we then respond? You know, what has Jesus done for you? And now the author goes, so how should you respond if you understand what Jesus has done for you? You took the communion bread this morning. You drank that communion wine. And you reminded, you, she asked you to stop and contemplate and reflect on, on how that applies to your life. And now the author is going, you know what Jesus has done for you. So, so how do you respond? And that brings me to my second question. What response to Jesus should we offer? Now remember, the author is, is speaking to wavering Christians. Christians who were tempted to become de-churched. Christians who were tempted to walk away from faith and fellowship. And he says that in the light of all that Jesus has done, here's what I'm asking you. Now, I don't know if you've picked up, picked up in that little, uh, let's go to that next slide there, Glenn. It's interesting to me that the author says, let us, in these two verses, uh, three verses, he says, let us three times. Let us, let us, let us. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love. In Hebrews, the author is telling us that the, re the response that we should have to Jesus in verse 22 is faith. Firstly, the response that we should have to Jesus in, in verse 23 is hope. And in verse 24, it's love. And so if we had to ask ourselves this morning, as a Christian, how should I live my life? The answer is, I should live my life in faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Let's just have a look at this. So our first response to Jesus is, is, is around faith. My response is to draw near in faith to him. Let, let, let me, let Andrew, draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Come on, Andrew, you can draw, draw near to God. Do that in faith. And I love the words here. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. In other words, in light of what Jesus has done, you and I can come to God as we are. You can come before God as you are. With a sincere heart means that I don't, I don't have to come before God with any level of pretense. No hypocrisy. I don't even have to have all the right words. I don't have to know how to pray. 
I can just come before God with a sincere heart. I can speak to God like I would speak to my closest friend in life. I could just speak to God about what's going on. Come before God with utter, utter transparency. Because there's a priest praying for me, supporting me in my prayers. There's a Savior whose body was torn and broken, whose blood was shed, who's showing me that God wants to reach me, that God wants a relationship with me. And so I can come before God in truth and with full assurance and full confidence. I do that by faith. And the same is true for you. Draw near in faith. Secondly, our response to Jesus is to hold fast to the confession of, of our hope. In verse 23, the writer says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. So, in my relationship with God, there's an ongoing effort to hold on. There's an ongoing effort to stay connected. You don't come to Jesus one time in your life. Can you imagine what kind of marriage I'd have with Debbie if I said, I told you once that I loved you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> I would never say to her, on my wedding day, I love you, and then never say, I love you again. I say, I love you every single day. I said, you're a woman to love. So it's the same in our relationship with Jesus. This is not a one-time thing. I'm not, I, how can I have a relationship with him and neglect him day after day or week after week? No, what the author's saying over here is continue to hold on. Continue to hold on. And you know that this hope that we profess in some translations, the Bible says, it words it as the confession of our hope. This confession of our hope is about the testimony of, um, of the faith of the believers in the early church. So it's what those believers would say before they got baptized. And we do this in our church. Whenever anybody gets baptized, this is what happens in the early, happened in the early church. Before a person came to be baptized in the early church, they would stand up in front of other believers and they would say, here's what I believe. And that's what we encourage people to do. Is we want you to give you a testimony of the faith that you have. Right? Here's what I believe. And so they make a confession of faith. And the author of Hebrews is saying, hang on to that. Hang on to what you said you believe. Hold on to that. How many of you here this morning have been baptized? The author is saying to you, hold on to your confession. Hold on to that statement of faith, that confession of faith. Hang on to what you said you believe. And here's where the gears change a little bit in this sermon this morning. Because this absolutely breaks my heart. Because what I'm observing more and more, and I've been in ministry for a long time, but in the church these days, more and more, what you find is a lot of people who came to a place in their life where they said yes. They said yes to the Christian faith. They said yes to Jesus as Lord. They said yes to forgiveness of sins and, and his death on the cross. They said yes. And so they entered into this entire new world of following Jesus. 
and, and, and being part of his church in baptism because that's partly what baptism does. We get baptized into the church to be part of the household, the community of God. And so a lot of people come and they receive the Christian faith. They receive it. It's not something that you created or I created. They receive it. But what I've observed over the years is that a lot of people who've made a confession, who've been baptized and made a confession and entered into this world called Christianity, over time, what happens with some people is they, they, they go, you know what, this Christian thing, there's some things about this Christian thing that I, I can't actually hold on to anymore. There's some things about this that I can't actually believe anymore. You know, you know the Christian teaching on marriage and where it says that sex is only acceptable within that context. That seems really outdated. I mean, come on, 21st century, nobody believes that you have to be married to have sex anymore. You know, or this idea that you know, a person's got to place their faith in Jesus in order to be saved. You know, seriously, what do you, that seems really narrow. You got to, it's, uh, Jesus, uh, that's, that, that might even be bigoted. You know, or the notion that God sends people to hell. You know, that, that there is such a thing. That seems really harsh. I can't believe that. And so you, you know what happens is when people begin to get, go down that path, they begin to kind of say to themselves, I'm gonna, I want to be a Christian, but I'm going to reconfigure this faith to make it fit into what I find acceptable. I'm going to reconfigure things. I'm going to pick what I want to follow. And so instead of the Christian faith being something that I've received, it's something that I, I, I didn't create, right? It, it's a world that I enter into through faith and baptism. No, no. Now what many people are going is, no, no, Christianity is something that I make. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to make Christianity fit into what I find acceptable. In the same way that I'm at the center of my existence, I'm at the center of my Christian faith. I'm the maker. I'm the creator. And folks, this is the battle. This is the battle. The culture of this world in which we live in, the way of this world, the demonic forces at work, are conditioning us, they're training us to approach everything in life with me at the center. Me at the center. Not Jesus at the center. Me at the center. My tastes, my preferences, my opinions, what I like, what I desire, what I want. That's what always wins. And so for someone who begins to not hold to the confession of their hope, they begin to approach Christianity in the same way. You know what? I like Christianity, but I don't really like what Jesus had to say about divorce. I like Christianity, but I really don't like what Paul had to say about sex. I like Christianity, but you know, I like telling other people things that, that, that I think they should know. And James says, he, he says some stuff about gossip. And I don't really like what James said, so I don't think I'm going to hold to that. And so they rewrite their Christian beliefs according to their own tastes or preferences rather than receive what has been given to us by Jesus and the apostles. And this is really quite important because the author of Hebrews is saying, hang on to the confession you once made. Live the Jesus way of life. 
And, and you know what? It's okay to question. It's okay to wrestle through these things. But don't recreate the Christian faith in your own image or in the image of what the 21st century world finds acceptable. Christianity is not a do-it-yourself religion. Let us draw near in faith. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope. And to wavering Christians, the writer says this. He says, provoke one another to love. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love. Some translations use the words provoke. It's, it's, quite, it's, quite, um, it's quite strong language. The, the writer is literally saying, pay attention to how you can incite someone to love. How you can strongly urge them, provoke one another to, to love in a better way. And so, you and I, we need each other. We all need each other. We need each other to stay connected to Jesus in a world that is constantly trying to drag us and our children away from Jesus. We need each other. We need the encouragement of each other. We need to come alongside one another and, and, and incite one another to love, to urge and encourage, strongly spur one another on to love and good deeds. Okay, I said I'm not going to go over time, so we'll wrap up. I'm thinking of a plane landing. You're going to land the plane. Debbie and I watched this show on Apple. It's so amazing. Well, uh, it's called Hijack. Don't, don't ruin it. Okay. Anyway, okay. <laughs> but it just reminded me. Let, let's land the plane. There's one massive stumbling block in people's lives when it comes to continuing on in the faith. There's, there's a huge stumbling block that, that gets in the way of us staying connected to Jesus. You know, uh, Jesus calls us sheep. It's interesting, eh? <laughs> and sheep are not the most intelligent of animals, but Jesus calls us sheep. And, 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 uh, and, and you know, when, when people begin to drift away from God and they begin to drift away from faith in Jesus, when they begin to drift away from being connected to his church, you, you become like a wayward sheep. And you know, a wayward sheep is a sheep that just nibbles the grass and nibbles the grass and nibbles the grass and gets further and further and further away from the flock. That's a wayward sheep. Then the shepherd's got to go after the thing. Bring that thing back. Shepherd will lift him up over his shoulders, take him back to the flock. And so the same is true when it comes to people who begin to drift away from faith and from fellowship. It's a step-by-step thing. Step-by-step. No big thing. It's just a little bit of neglect, a little more neglect, a bit more neglect, a little more neglect. And before I know it, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty far off course. I'm out there. I'm not in church anymore. I'm not with God anymore. And the more I begin to neglect and not hold on to those things and refuse to stay connected, something begins to die on the inside. D.L. Moody once gave a great illustration. He took a, a, a guy said to him, why should I be in church? Why should I stay connected? And this was in the 1800s. He reached down with the, the iron tongs into the fireplace and he took out a burning coal and he just put it next to the fire on the on the on the side of the fireplace and the coal began to lose the heat it began to lose the orange glow and then he picked it back up and he put it back in the fire and the coal regained its orange glow and he was just using i thought it's a really great illustration 
And so the third question here this morning is, what obstacle keeps us from Jesus? And the answer to that question is that people move away from fellowship. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying over here in verse 25. Don't give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that this age is going to come to an end. And the scripture says it's like a th- you're not going to be really, you, you better be prepared for it because it's going to be like a thief in the night. You could miss it. So what stops us from drawing near to God in faith? Quite simply, it's not meeting together with other Christians. It's trying to do Christian faith on your own. What stops us from hanging on to our hope? What hinders our ability to encourage one another to love? We abandon the practice of meeting together. We need the church. And we need to connect deeply to the church. And not only the church on a Sunday, folk. One of the things we do in our church is we encourage people to get into small groups. Because on a day like today, it's for worship and for teaching. But when you're in a small group, you can have discussion and questions. And that connection is so, so, so important. Maybe I could just ask you this morning, oh, and do any of you know someone, maybe it's a family member or somebody, a friend or somebody who's no longer actively connected to the church, no longer kind of attends or no longer shows any connection to the Christian faith? Does anybody know anybody like that? Yeah, yeah, quite a few hands. I've known a lot of people over the years who've said things to me like, Andrew, I don't need church. I don't really need church. You know, I can, I can get together with a few Christian friends, you know, and we can, you know, from time to time have a glass of wine, have a meal, you know, we talk to one another. Why can't I just meet with a few Christian friends that I like? Isn't that the same thing as going to church? Isn't that the same thing as being connected to a church? Why do I need to go to some building and worship God with music that I don't even enjoy? I've heard those. I, people have said those kinds of things to me. Of course, the the church isn't a building. The church is God's people. But I can give you plenty of reasons why, if you're a Christian, you should put your roots deeply down in the church. When someone comes along and says, isn't gathering with a couple of Christian friends church? The answer very simply is, no, it isn't. It's great to have Christian friends. It's great to have people who see the world like you do, you know, share musical tastes, uh, have a similar background ethnically or educationally. You know, it's great to get together with friends who have the same political views, the same issues in Christianity. You like the same food. You like the same movies. That's great. But I'll tell you something this morning. That is not church. See, the wonderful thing about church is that we don't pick the people who are in the church. Isn't that amazing? God does. We we don't pick the people. The people of Renew, I don't pick them. There's no kind of um, test that you've got to get through to get into Renew. The doors are open. So we don't pick the people. God does. And the the amazing thing about God is God picks people who are very, very different to us to sit next to us. I love that about God. The beautiful thing about church is that I don't get to pick the people. God does. And God picks people very often 
who don't agree with me on all things. People who um, I don't necessarily agree with. God picks people who I might not necessarily hang out with. <laughs> they probably don't want to hang out with me either. God picks them. But we're in this place of being God's people, not my people, God's people. And so when I'm in this place of being God's people, with God's people, then I get to be stretched in my love for others. I'm, I'm stretched to love others beyond my tribe, right? I'm stretched to love others beyond my own viewpoints, beyond my own way of looking at the world. And I'm learning how to love people who are very different to me. I'm learning how to love people who come from different backgrounds. I'm learning how to love people who have different opinions. And so the beauty of the church compared to having a few Christian friends is that we don't pick the people. God does. And the writer of Hebrews in this passage that we've looked at this morning is essentially saying, stay connected. Stay connected. Don't move away from fellowship. Don't disconnect. Keep on meeting with other Christians. Don't abandon your small group. Don't abandon church when the church gathers. Stay connected. The writer of Hebrews is speaking to Christians in his day who were being tempted to leave the truth. And, and the writer is speaking to Christians today and he's saying, stay connected. Stay connected. Don't disconnect because you'll be in danger of your faith dying. Stay connected.